If you found our methodology, podcast, and general view on sales performance intriguing, you may find this offer very interesting. And as you know, we don't do them often. Before I share what the offer is, here's three brief questions I'd like you to consider. Number one, do you want to take your prospecting to the next level without being that guy who struggles with solicitation confidence and boundaries? Two, do you want to know exactly how to build trust with people in a way that compels them to want to spend time with you? Three, do you want to build an outreach cadence and routine that will help you succeed in a hyper-changing business environment? If yes to any of these questions, join Lapa 180 in our new four-part webinar series that starts February 15th, 2023. Go to lapa180.com slash webinars to learn more about this special series. It's not just about saying the right thing. To make up some of those trust points, if that's what we're calling them, um, it's about making people feel the right thing. And that doesn't have to come from common ground. It could be that you see a very clear gap and the person who fills that gap could have you know, absolutely nothing in common with you. And that's exactly what you need. That was Dr. Nicole Fisher-Roberts presenting a counter-argument to one of the most common myths around building trust. Nicole is the executive director of Feed a Billion, an international nonprofit that feeds girls around the world to prevent exploitation. She's also the founder of Health and Human Rights Strategies, an independent international institute that works to promote the advancement of healthcare and human rights. Nicole received her doctorate of public health from the University of North Carolina, along with a Master of Public Policy from the University of Chicago. In this two-part one-on-one interview, Dan continues his deep dive into the core attribute of sales, that often vague set of social behaviors we call trust. In this episode, Nicole and Dan discuss the relationship between risk and trust, power of vulnerability, how to build trust through questions, and how that old sales pursuit of finding commonalities shouldn't be your only rapport tactic. And now, the first half of their conversation. Nicole, for for this, what I think is powerful is Mm -hmm. we teach really a lot of times 180 degree difference between what traditional sales tells a consultant or a sales professional to do versus what we're trying to educate them on and influence them to do. And a lot of times it's so different than what they're used to. I know they spend a lot of time debating and questioning it. And the premise of what we're doing is we are truly trying to help sales professionals really tap into your expertise, which is how do you build trust, right? How do you become very purposeful in in building trust? And as an example for our listeners, if you go to episode number 76, it's all about the relationship between the risk that another human being feels, which is your prospect or your client, toward doing something different, debating this idea of making a change in what they do or how they do something and what that risk represents to the prospect or client and the trust that the sales professional or the consultant builds. So in other words, if the prospect or the client views risk of change at a seven, then the sales professional, the consultant will need to build 
a congruent amount of trust for that prospect or client to feel good about making a change. So I think from there, it's great to dive into trust now. I think that's a great level set. Okay. Well, I would like to stop you actually right there. Okay. So, and I remember in that episode, you said, um, and I think maybe in that one you use seven as well, sort of that benchmark of seven, you know, you got to meet it with a seven. I would actually argue you've got to meet it with something higher than that. Okay. Trust building is so difficult that just matching someone's perception of risk, you may or may not win that sale. <laughs> um, and, and my rationale there is we're not rational. Actually, let's just start right there. We're not really rational. And we perceive losing something with a lot more weight than gaining something. You know, losing $5 to us means more, and we feel it uh, more than gaining $5. And so I would apply that to, to that conversation on, on trust building as well. You know, if you're trying to set a rapport with someone and they need a seven to just level set, then to win them over and build trust, you're going to need to be coming in at least an eight. Yeah, no, I, I buy into that as well. And the hard thing about sales is, and I know you and I have had a couple conversations prior to this, is that the mindset that most sales professionals have works against them. So in other words, right, when, when a sales professional comes into that conversation, they are trained, unfortunately, and in a way incented because of reward or their addiction to immediate gratification for what they want. <laughs> they, are, they are trained to come in and, and, and pursue the agenda that meets their needs, which is how do I get this person to like me? How do I get them to see my value? How do I get them to want to do business with me? Which absolutely, right, completely is the opposite of how we as human beings build trust, right? We build trust by having the other person's best interest at heart. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, right there alone, right, it's just so difficult. I think most sales professionals start their relationships behind the, the trust eight ball, and then they do things to put themselves further behind that trust eight ball. Let's talk a little bit about biases since you brought it up. You know, I'm okay. always interested to hear um, an expert's opinion on them. And you brought up one of the biggest ones, right? Which is that loss aversion. And a lot of our sales professionals and listeners, right? They, at the end of a presentation, they presented their solution. A lot of times that prospect or client will then turn to our clients and say, hey, you've given us a lot to think about. Thanks for the effort here. We're going to get together in a couple weeks. We'll review and we'll get back to you. And then that prospect or client leaves. And we've always kind of had this opinion here at Lap 180. It is probably, it's so hard for that prospect or client to truly be objective when they finally get back to reviewing the proposal. And should they make a change or not make a change? Well, you mentioned a couple things. And first is, I guess I'll work backwards, change. There is nothing harder for a human to do than change. Our brain fights change. At our core, we fight change. And so that's just important to know. It's not a personal slight against you or anyone else. You're asking people to do something that is innately very, very difficult for them. And so, you know, 
you just have to understand what they're working through. And to you, it may seem obvious. They may increase sales. They may save, you know, how many X this or that their workforce may do Y or Z. But for them, it's a lot more than that, right? Like change is just difficult. Um, The other thing you mentioned is bias. (laughs) And bias is one of those really tricky aspects to trust. We're all biased. We can't help it. Um, We have lots of experiences in our lives. But what biases do, you know, in in a really positive way, is they're shortcuts for our brain. And so, you know, someone comes in and you hear they've done X, Y, Z, and you're like, okay, great. I no longer need to worry if they're capable of certain things. I know that they've they have this many years experience or they've worked with this team or you know, whatever it is. A bias can be a wonderful shortcut that allows us to jump over a lot of the trust building process. On the flip side, um, you know, and I know in one of your other episodes, you talked about credentialing and we can come back to that later, but you know, it can be BS. Um, and just because someone exudes confidence doesn't mean we should trust them. I mean, there are the Bernie Madoffs of the world right? These people are the absolute best at walking and talking the walk and talk. We immediately jump to, oh, we can trust them with our money, with our livelihood, with our children's inheritance, with our businesses. And uh, it was all a lie, right? And so those biases, in one sense, they're really great. And they help us build trust and understand each other, move processes faster, on the flip side, you know, they really show some downfalls of human interaction and, and the human brain. Yeah, I want to get into that. If you don't mind, we can try that a little bit here. So how do biases help us in building trust? First of all, we'll start with the shortcut. It helps us bond faster. Trust building is a long and difficult process. And if you are looking for certain things and someone immediately presents themselves and has a number, if not all of those things, you can let your guard down much faster. You know they're going to meet your needs and or they check off how many other criteria you need to move forward. And that's exceptionally helpful. That makes sense. Is that where this ongoing decades and decade and decade theory or approach about building commonalities kicks in where mm-hmm. if we sense a commonality between ourselves and another human being, that is a biased shortcut for our brain to say, Hey, maybe this person's worth trusting. Is, is that, yes. is that what's at play there? Uh, that's part of it. Um, and to that, to that point, anything that challenges our belief system, our preferences, our way of thinking and doing operating, immediately causes us to turn inward. uh, Just like saying change is hard, thinking differently and being open to other ideas is really hard. It's hard for our brain to process. And I hate where we are in the world with the pandemic of using that, right? (laughs) And yet it's such a a wonderful example, especially I'm a, my background, I'm a doctor of public health. And so it sort of just lives in, in my brain. But, you know, when we challenged people's beliefs of how something worked or what we should do to improve. Um, We saw people run 
I mean, like trip over things, run to their corners of belief systems, as opposed to being open and saying, well, maybe we could do this. Maybe we could do that. And in that case, you know, people's biases became very obvious, very fast. And in that case, I won't go too far with it, but you know, science is hard. The entire point of science is to learn and change. And with each new piece of information, you should get a new outcome. That's how it works. But people often see that as flip-flopping or, you know, all of a sudden it's like, well, you didn't know this. So how should I trust you on this? And so any challenge to our belief system, you know, for lack of a better phrase, we just shut down. We don't know how to process it and it overwhelms our systems. It erodes trust. (laughs) You're describing our world. We are coaches, right? And as I let off the podcast, uh, we talk about doing things a lot of times 180 degrees different than what's traditionally been taught. So a lot of the things that we are teaching are new, new ideas, new approaches, a different view. Yes. And to your point, right, it is, it's got to be so hard for our listeners and, and those that we coach to be mindful enough and self-aware enough to say, hold on. I'm not going to revert back to what I've always done in this particular instance. I'm going to try this and I'm going to move forward. I mean, that that's not an easy thing to do from, from what you're, you're sharing. No, it's not. And so that's why those commonalities are so important because if you're asking a person, whether it's someone you're training or something they're trying to, we'll just say, you know, sell or, or bring in a new client, you're asking that person to do something difficult, even if they don't recognize it's, it's difficult. Their body is sort of fighting the change. And so, you know, being able to find whether it's a shared experience, you know, people, you'll hear people mention like their children or something, right? They'll bond over that. They'll find commonalities wherever they can because those, you know, whether they're shortcuts, attachment, all the sort of different things that commonalities provide, it makes the change less scary or less lonely, maybe is an even better word. I know as coaches here on my team, we do try to share our experiences when it comes to trying new things or how a particular approach or methodology played out. Is, is that a good example of trying to infuse some commonality between us and who we're teaching? It is. Um, and that can be really difficult as well. <laughs> this is probably a terrible example, but I mean, vulnerability is really hard as well. We, we don't like to be vulnerable. In fact, you'll see, and it's a terrible example, but you know, point to any relationship with your spouse or even your parents or you, you don't always tell them the truth right? When something goes wrong, you often try and fix it before you open up to them about it, before you become vulnerable. I mean, people end up divorced and then all of a sudden they realize there's a lot of things that were wrong, but they didn't want to have those tough conversations. And so if we struggle with vulnerability that much in our own homes with our spouses and children and parents and loved ones, you know, take that to the workplace where you're dealing with sometimes practical strangers. Vulnerability is, it's not something that's just going to happen. And so by, you know, and I know it's a fine line of opening up too much, you know, personally in a work environment, but 
giving, whether it's a story or an example or, you know, just something that lets the other person know you're human and we have this in common. I understand the dynamics of what's going on, not just in the work environment, but in the whole person's life. Um, it can go a really, really long way. Um, vulnerability is one of, I, I wrote a Forbes article years ago on, on trust. And it's one of the five sort of trust building exercises I, I wrote about being vulnerable. I'm going to connect that to something that I've experienced as a parent and I know also plays into business. So I have teenagers now and there are plenty of times where I will go to my teenagers and in the past I would see something playing out and I would try to give them advice. And I know they did not listen and I could tell by their reactions it was in one ear and literally out the other. Yet I also know in my heart that the advice was spot on because they were going through something that I had been through. Mm -hmm. But I know that they did not register the advice. Mm -hmm. So what I did a couple of years ago is I started switching to questions. Yes. So instead of coming out with the advice, I would ask questions. And what I found was it took more patience. It definitely took more thinking and time. Mm -hmm. but I could see that they were thinking and I could see that because they were thinking different things might be resonating. And so I would walk away from that conversation, not completely sure that they would take my thoughts or my advice through my questions, but I wasn't, I wasn't convinced it went, went out in one ear and out the other. In other words, I had hope. Because you were making them engage in the process. And it can be the same with a client, right? As opposed to talking at someone who's in their own mind, you know, especially if, you know, an example of your children, if they're going through something, they're busy thinking about what they're going through. That's all they can think about, right? And you could just be like the peanuts teacher noise, just wah, 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 wah. You know, and some, and some pieces might stick, might resonate, but for the most part, they're consumed by what they're thinking about, what their problem is. And it can be the same with clients. And so by asking questions as opposed to telling, you're ensuring that they are actively engaged in the conversation. And even more than engaged listening, they're having to internalize the question, think about it, as you said. And even if they don't give you the most eloquent response or an exact answer to your question, exactly what you just said, they're thinking about it. And that sticks with them. Uh, much more than just words coming at them. <laughs> I'm going to add two comments to that. The first one's for our listeners, and the second one might be more of a question for you. But the first one is this. For our listeners, this is why you hear us all the time talking within our webinars, our workshops, and our coaching about take the time, be patient, ask the prospect and client questions, help them start to think through and debate this idea of should they be doing something different? Why should they be doing something different? What are their options? My question though is, cause you mentioned vulnerability, Nicole, and, I, mm -hmm. and I, I love that thought process. I've heard and through my own limited like study and reading, and I don't know, maybe you and I have even talked about this in the past. If one human being shows vulnerability in a conversation with another, there is potentially a strong likelihood that the other person 
will also show some vulnerability, will match or align with vulnerability. That's right. Um, not always, but for the most part, we can't help it. Okay. Like it, it's just built in us. I mean, how often does someone, it doesn't matter how frustrated you are. Um, you know, again, it could be a, a spouse or a child and they say, I'm sorry. And you're like, it's okay. Right. You immediately comfort them. You could be mad as hell about it and you don't actually forgive them in that moment. But your instinct is to be like, it's okay because they said they were sorry. They're saying, you know, they're, they're being vulnerable. And so your gut instinct is to comfort them or, or match that vulnerability of like, oh, oh, it's okay. If you're sorry, then I'm sorry too. Right. And you may not fully mean it, but you, you, you just instinctively do it. And we see it even with just gestures and behavior, right? Like we mimic those who are around us. We match the, I'd even go as far as to say the vibe, right? <laughs> if someone's really <laughs> intense, we often come intense. If someone's quiet and meek, we often very much meet where they are. So um, yeah, that's just part of human interaction. The, the caveat I would put on that is, you know, there's a big difference or can be between in person then when we can see and, and sort of literally all of our senses are engaged with that other human being versus this new world we live in of zoom and all of that, right? You get a little bit of that, like it's multi-sensory, but it's not the same. And then you get other correspondence. You know, most of us unfortunately live on email and things of that nature. And, and that's a completely different form of engagement. And so um, that last medium, I would say it's much harder uh, because you can be vulnerable, someone can read it, have that immediate gut instinct, and then they come back to the email a week later when, to your point, their teams had time to gather, discuss, and that initial human connection is gone. And now it's just a reply to an email. So yeah, I think all forms of engagement bring about different person-to-person -person responses or that mimicking or matching behavior. Yeah, I remember when we started the podcast this this morning, um, your camera was a little bit on and off. And I even said I'd prefer to be able to see Nicole. So, right, because I just know from my own experience, you can tell tone, right? You can tell a lot just from a voice that is very true. But to see a body language, be able to try to make some kind of eye contact on the camera, that does help, right? It helps us get into a groove maybe more together and maybe a little bit more of that mimicking together that you refer to. For me, one of the toughest experiences of the last couple of years, uh, well, actually there's two. Uh, one, the nonprofit I run, we work all over the world. And so when you're building trust in, especially these low resource areas in countries, you need to be on the ground, right? These schools where people are food insecure, children are struggling, it's really hard to build that relationship over a Zoom type medium. It, it really takes in-person interaction. That's been so difficult the last few years to to learn new ways to build trust when you, you don't get to shake hands or, or see what's going on in person. You just have to take people at their word. And then, you know, secondarily, this medium or these different kinds of mediums, they really push us push us in, in new ways. And 
I found I moderate and MC a lot of events. And I, I can tell you just even looking down like a panel, I feel so confident. I forget the audience is there, right? It's about moving a conversation forward with these two, three people on the stage. And just by the way they respond to each other, you can see someone kind of sit up or their eyes get wide or they're nodding vigorously, right? Like you, you just know they've got something to add or, ooh, this is a good place where we're going to get different perspectives. I can just tell by the, the grimace on their face, something like that. And I've noticed um, so much of that does not translate to this new video medium where I can't see people's body reaction. I can only see their face and they're staring, they're too busy staring at their own camera and themselves, which, you know, again, we, we can't help it. We see ourself and it doesn't matter how many other people are on the screen, we're busy looking at ourselves. Uh, but it's, you don't get those same kinds of reactions. And certainly the ones that we've done without video as a moderator, I feel at a complete loss when I'm trying to get two or three people to converse and everyone ends up tripping over each other or, or going, can, can I, can I say something here? And it just, it loses its momentum. Uh, they're, they're very different engagement. Yeah. Seeing is seeing touching is, is really part of our human experience. When it comes to zoom, we stand and we stand because we're trying to give the audience, the other individual, more of a view of our body mm-hmm. so they can see more of our cues, our hand yes. gestures, our swaying, all of that versus what we do see sometimes, right? And I'm going to do it now is when we get on to Zoom, we will see people just showing their head, <laughs> looking up. And I always feel like these individuals, even though I know some of them and I, and I know they're engaged, but it just comes off as if like they're trying to hide or they're not too sure Mm -hmm. they want to be on the screen. There's a little bit of a trust thing going on there, which is, are they really paying attention? Do they really want to be engaged on this particular zoom call? Just, it's just weird how we pick up different things and we interpret them. So right, right away. And, and right. Yes. Yeah. And that's very true. And I'm, if you can see me, I'm really close, but it's only so that the microphone picks up my voice. So, you know, one of the things we did talk about about 10 minutes ago was this. I want to kind of make sure I hit on it for our listeners is this whole idea of finding common ground for our listeners. And and Nicole, please weigh in on this. Finding common ground during a conversation obviously has some trust value. All right. Mm -hmm. That, That it's clear. But for our listeners, you have to also remember it's not often going to be enough trust level on its own just to close the gap between say your prospect or client views change at a seven risk. And let's say you're at a five in trust Mm -hmm. and we're going to be analytical about this Mm -hmm. and you need to close that gap of at least two or three points in trust. Finding common ground is probably not going to be on its own, right? The winning solution. I agree. So I just want to make sure we, we're, we're clear on that. It, it, it can help, but it, it's not going to push you over the edge. Following that and, and slightly different, I think, you know, what I would say to that is it's not just about saying the right thing to connect, to make up some of those trust points, if, if that's what we're calling them. Um, it's about making people feel the right thing. 
And that doesn't have to come from common ground. You know, it could be that you see a very clear gap in your whatever it is, right? Whatever process. And the person who fills that gap could have, you know, absolutely nothing in common with you. And that's exactly what you need. You need, if you're a, you know, a great spokesperson and salesperson and you need an analytical person who has no emotion and no feeling and they're really, really, really good with the numbers and what they do. I feel terrible saying accountants are what come to mind right away. <laughs> you know, I don't need my accountant to have gone to the same high school that one of my friends did to feel good, right? What I need to build that trust is knowledge that they've worked with, in my case, nonprofits before. It's a completely different kind of accounting and filing and all. Right? So when I chose ours, I didn't get the warm fuzzies. I didn't get whatever that is, but they closed the gap with skill and, um, you know, other ways. So, so, you know, sorry, it's a little different, but I, but I think it, it's a piece of the equation is, um, I don't want people to get, you know, in the mindset of thinking I have to find something that we both have in common. That's not always the case. No, it's, it's not. It's, we call that here. And I'm so glad you brought that up, Nicole. We call that expertise or competency. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I like to use the example of if I'm stranded on a, on a highway and there's nobody around and there is one garage within 30 miles, right? I'm not looking for common ground. I'm not looking for commonalities. I'm not looking for trust and rapport or honesty yet. I'm actually just looking for competency and expertise. Can you, can you come out here and help me and get my car going again? Yes. And then all those other things come from that initial engagement. Yeah. Now, on the flip side, if my car needs serviced, but it's not urgent, right? I might need an oil change, fluids changed, alignment, stuff like that, right? Competency or expertise is going to matter, but it may not matter the most because I have options. And so what might also come into play could be commonalities, could be honesty, right? It could be the high intent of the garage or the benevolence of the garage as well. Those things could come into play as well as competency when I'm not in a hurry, when I have time to debate. Yes. And I think you used a great word, um, intent and intention. I think that's a very important and powerful word for the the process of trust building. People know, people know when you're fake, they know when you're BSing for the most part. And, you know, for our listeners, your prospects and clients know when you're asking questions that serve your need to make the sale yes. versus you're asking questions that help them decide if change has merit, your prospect and clients know the difference on your intent, whether you say it or not, they pick up on it. Yes. And in fact, there's an example I would give, um, again, just slightly different because if I come from a, a different world. Uh, you know, I do a lot of writing and earlier I mentioned um, that I had written a Forbes article about trust. <clears throat> and so when you publish in different magazines and, and whatnot, you get pitched all the time. And I have struggled to build trust with PR people, especially because my background's in healthcare. And so in health, you know, I get, and I'm not lying, 
couple hundred pitches a day. And I write once every six months, right? It's really overwhelming sometimes. Um, and everyone's got the newest state of the art, first of its kind, come up with all the words and hyphens you can. And, um, and so it can be really difficult to parse out who's telling the truth, who's not. And when it comes to PR, you know, they're not the people doing the science. They've been hired to sell the, the company or the idea, the product, whatever. And so for me, when I get hundreds of emails a day, uh, you know, I can immediately take probably half, if not 70% out because they literally send an email that says dear, and it'll still say fill in journalist name here. Yeah. Oh, they, really? Yeah. So I know that first of all, they have no clue that I even exist. I'm just on some massive listserv. They didn't even bother to look up. Right. I actually got pitched um, a cat that wears a GoPro the other day. I was like, you know, not what I do. Very interested in the cat, but not at all. <laughs> what I do. Right. So, I mean, just off the wall things I can immediately, I don't have to open those emails. I know they're, they're not really for me because, because right there and then, right. You're trying to figure out reading this email. Is it going to deliver value or diminish value? Is it going to deliver something that's worth your time or is it going to create something that's not worth your time? Right. You're trying to figure out in essence, mm -hmm. is this going to harm or help you? Is this even Right, right out of the gate, you're looking at patterns, you're trying to read into things quickly so you can protect your time. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, to extend that, there are a couple of people I have a wonderful relationship with. And it all started with me knowing that they're PR people and they want me to write about their clients. But what they did differently was reach out and one even went so far as to have like a coffee sent to the house, right? Instead of like a 30 minute zoom call. And she just blatantly said, I'm the new head of PR at fill in your whatever. And, um, she said, I see in the past you've written about our company once. I also see that you do the following kinds of topics, neuroscience, you know, public health, how people behave, and she said, I'd love to get, even if it's 15 minutes on your calendar to hear more about what your interests are so that in the future, you know, I can pitch you when we've got something, but I don't want to waste your time. Not only did I read the email, I set up the 15 minutes, <laughs> did not need to send a coffee, but I just thought like how clever and, you know, whatever. Um, and we talked about overlapping interests and I hear from her maybe once a year. But when I hear from her, I open the email. I know it's going to be a quality pitch. I know it's a company doing something right in my wheelhouse. And I know it's going to be, she's going to offer up data and an interview with someone in the company that is important and meaningful. And I will be like, oh, that's great. I would love to have that conversation. I had no idea, whatever it is. Um, and to me, that value is just so great. And I realize it takes lots of time. She had to invest, she had to follow up and she rarely engages me, but you know, when one of her clients gets mentioned or whatever, when I'm speaking or in a magazine or something like that, she's, you know, proven her, her value in that investment, um, and she does it because she asked me questions about my interests. And, and I knew all along she was selling me something. She's pitching me something. I have no problem with it because we had a mutually beneficial 
um, conversation and we built trust. Yeah. From what you're articulating to me and sharing, it, it feels like, yes, she had a pitch and she had a purpose for reaching out to you, but she didn't make the conversation about her pitch and her purpose. Nope. She made it about a narrative that was more in line with you, which is mm -hmm. what interests you. She took the time to get to know a little bit of your background. She referenced it and she spent time, invested time in learning, which is about you so that she could help figure out as well what narratives or, or what pitches would Nicole be interested in? Because I'm not going Nicole with everything. I'm only going to go to Nicole with what I think she's going to find value in. Yes. And by giving me that time and asking those questions to learn, when I see her name, I immediately think the least I can do is open this email. She took the time to do these things that no one else does in this world that I, I live in. So I, I owe her at least an open email, a response, right? So, I mean, we've created now an ongoing engagement of respect and trust. And uh, that's really rare in that world of PR. There's a lot more to come from Dan and Nicole's conversation on trust. From today's episode, we hope you learned something new from Nicole's perspective on giving advice to others. Telling someone how you can help, aka sharing your value, doesn't engage or build trust. Learning to ask questions is how to build a connection with someone. Think about where you spend your energy. Are you trying to convince someone to take your advice, or are you trying to help them broaden their perspective and think differently? We also loved how Nicole gave us insight into understanding that trust is intentional and so much more than commonalities. Nicole's work around vulnerability and trust is tied closely with Lapin 180's upcoming four-part webinar series, where we'll be discussing self-awareness, mindset, and overcoming stigmas in business development. Many of the principles Dan and Nicole discussed in this episode will be expanded upon in our webinars, set to begin in February 2023. You can sign up at lapin180.com slash webinars. Don't forget to tune in next week for the second part of Dan's conversation with Dr. Nicole Fisher-Roberts, Executive Director of Feed a Billion. If you enjoyed this episode of Breaking Sales, please share it on your social media platforms or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.